0: Welcome to The Chris Rawl Show. My name is Chris Rawl. There are some things I would like to let you know about. First and foremost, I write a newsletter. It comes out every Wednesday morning. It's very easy to sign up for. All you do is go to com. You put your name into the email box. You click subscribe in the top right-hand corner of the screen, it pops up, there you go, bam. Every Wednesday morning, you're gonna be rocking and rolling. Number two, I want to interview people who are passionate about sports, who want to talk about that specific passion. Uh, and I want them to be on this show. So, if you are comfortable in front of a mic and you have a story that you want to tell about sports in some capacity, or you know of somebody else, please email me, chris at ceo.com. I think it could be very interesting to talk to people who who feel similarly to me. So, those are the two things that are on my plate today. Go think about them, do them. And now we get on to the meat of the show, where on today's episode, I talk about positional value and what we value specifically within a position. Now, close your eyes and sleep. 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 All right folks. Sleep. Today I would like to talk about two things. First and foremost, positional value. Second, what we value specifically within a position and then how both of those things are constantly changing. It's a long and winding road depending upon the position, depending upon the sport. And the gears started churning as I was watching Game 3 of the NBA Finals. Celtics kind of run the Warriors out of the building, and in the fourth quarter I'm just thinking about various things because that's what my brain does. And one of the things that started popping around in my head was the two players on Golden State, despite the loss, they're now down 2-1 going into Game 4. But despite the loss, the two players on Golden State that have kind of become synonymous with this era and two players who have really turned natural assumptions on their heads. We're right there. Steph Curry and Draymond Green. Steph Curry was phenomenal, awesome, sensational game three. Draymond Green was literally the polar opposite. He was just absentee father. It was two very different performances, but they're both people who have been incredible to this entire Golden State dynasty. They're also two people who in the context of prior NBA, don't make any sense. Which is what started this whole train of thought for me. Because Steph Curry starts games as Golden State's point guard. If you want to call it that. He's technically that within the lineup. But it doesn't match up with what we know about the point guard position in the past. Which was just floor general. You know, that's how we viewed the position. Think of somebody like John Stockton. Just, you're meticulous about getting everybody into the correct spots, feeding them in the correct ways, making sure that they're getting the ball in position to score time and again and again and again. And that's what the point guard position was for many decades, with very rare exceptions. But even somebody like an Isaiah Thomas, who was more of a hybrid, who could set people up, but also was known for scoring as well, they were looked at as kind of one-offs. You know, okay, the Pistons won a couple titles with Isaiah, but that's maybe just... Really exclusive to him. And we don't necessarily want the position to be that because we know you need to be the floor general. You need to bring the ball up the court and run a pick and roll and slide it into the hip pocket of Carl Malone. And there you go. Your job's done. Just over and over and over. It's strange, even looking back on a team like the 1999 Spurs, it's the first championship of the Tim Duncan era, came in that lockout shortened season. They go to the NBA finals, they're playing the Knicks, they end up winning in game five. But the point guard for that San Antonio team was Avery Johnson. If you remember watching Avery Johnson play basketball, couldn't shoot. Just He was a point guard who could pass the ball. He was not particularly good in any facet of the game. He was, at best, probably a league average starting guard. But he's just a guy who really struggled to shoot even wide-open jumpers. One of the big storylines I remember in Game 5 was Avery Johnson hit what amounted to the game-winning jumper in that game, just a wide-open jumper on the baseline inside the three-point arc where he steps up and drills it, and that ends up being the winning margin. It was this huge story. Oh, Avery Johnson, he doesn't know how to shoot. He can't shoot. He's the one who came through in crunch time for the Spurs. It's very bizarre looking back on, because you think about today's NBA, and you go, holy mackerel. Imagine starting anybody who doesn't shoot. You see that sometimes where it's just five men on the court. All of them can bomb from three, can shoot jumpers. And a lot of times, if you have one or especially two people on the court that can't shoot, you go, well, you just can't survive. Think back to game one of the NBA finals when the Warriors were trying to play Igodala and Draymond down the stretch. And it was just glaring because the Celtics, who already are a great defense, said, we're going to ignore both of those people because we don't trust them to make wide open shots. And the Warriors were flustered. So going back to Curry, he's drafted in 2009. Kind of amidst many opinions at that time, we'd seen him scorch everything as Davidson made a run to the Elite Eight, but a lot of people are saying, okay, he's too small. Okay, he's only a scorer. Okay, he can't play defense. A lot of the stuff he did or did not do didn't really make sense in our minds in the context of the NBA, and I include myself within that. I thought the run was incredible. I had no opinion one way or another with him coming into the draft and just like, I don't know. He can shoot the hell out of the ball. I don't know what that means as far as how high you draft him. And can you cover up some of these warts that he has and probably will always have, especially on the just he's a smaller player side. Now, it was impossible. I don't care who you are. It was impossible at that time to understand that this version of Davidson, Steph Curry would and could not only transfer to the NBA, but transform it. That's kind of what we've seen over a decade and change. Because now we know him as the gravitational force. Just by virtue of being out there, he's creating so much space, not only for himself, but especially for his teammates. He's the best shooter in NBA history. That makes more sense in the context of what we saw at Davidson, but still seeing it happen is just, okay, wow. That that gravitational side of things and how he pulls people to him just by virtue of being there. He could stand somewhere. He's always moving, so that's not really an issue, but he could literally go and stand somewhere. And the defense has to be hyper aware of where he is just because he needs an eye blink to shoot. He can do it from anywhere. And anytime it's going up in the air, you just feel like it's going in. He's one of, if not the most unique basketball players that I have ever watched. Now, it's not to say that The point guard position is now just, okay, what we want is this gravitational force that's running around and can shoot 45% from 45 feet. That's kind of exclusive to Steph. But we're seeing a little bit of a change in the way that, okay, what can the point guard position be? And even with that happening, there's still a reasonable amount of people who push back somewhat against Steph Curry because I don't think he makes as much sense as a generational star as people who have the body that we know works in the NBA and also do everything kind of the Swiss army knife basketball style player. I'm talking LeBron or Kawhi or Durant or Giannis, you know, the style it's worked for all of time. It will work for all of time because the sport rewards people who are six, eight and fast as hell and can jump super high and are physical and have skill sets that you can do a lot of things with. Makes less sense that this kind of dweeby looking guy relative to his peers can run around the court at a position that in the past, hey, you've set up your teammates and you get out of the way and you try to play a little bit of defense and not be a liability on that end. Makes a lot less sense to see a player in that position go, well, what if I just, by virtue of being on the court without the ball in my hands, let's start there. Create offense. That's, Matching up with the point guard position of the past in a very different way, right? What we value within the position. Now you're going, hmm, it's intriguing to have a gravitational force at point guard. Because he doesn't have to have the ball in his hands and now space is created for others. Okay, that's a very intriguing proposition. And now you're seeing more NBA teams just kind of engage with the idea that, all right, what can we put at the point guard position? Can we have our leading scorer just be a guard playing there? and then go from there. We're seeing more teams think like that. And again, it might not be the correct line of thinking. Uh, It might just be 10 years from now. We go, Steph Curry was kind of one of a kind and didn't really change how other teams constructed their team, what they wanted at that specific position. Might not be correct, you know, for other teams. Donovan Mitchell in Utah, they're going through a similar thing of, okay, he's a kind of a hybrid combo guard in an ideal world. He might be our point guard. We can't really have him be that with Mike calling on the rust right now, but can our best score be at that position and not necessarily be a set man for others. I don't know, but Curry has opened the door for what this position can be moving forward. I am very confident in that. Now what's just as, if not even more intriguing is his teammate Draymond green. Who kind of has opened this. Great, great window into tweeners playing in the NBA. Tweeners meaning just people who in the past would be looked at and you go, I don't know what position you are. And so if you're not a clearly defined position, it's hard for us to find a roster spot for you. Entering into the draft, this is 2012. Draymond is six foot six, but you all know his game now in present day. He's not a shooter. He's not a scorer. He's six foot six. So you're going, but. You need to play small forward. And traditionally, small forward is one of our best, if not our best, scorer, and they also need to create. And so the question coming into that 2012 draft is, well, what position is this guy going to play? We know he has some skills. We've seen those pop at Michigan State, but that's why he falls to 35th in that draft. Warriors take a chance on him. What we didn't know at the time, what we could not know, is that the small ball era was being ushered in the heat at that time they're kind of leaning into it small ball with size but still the concept remains the same go who pretty intriguing if we don't have to play a traditional center and we move chris bosh who has always played power forward his whole career to that center spot because he's pretty versatile and we can stretch them out on hmm, okay and we got lebron who's the ultimate swiss army he could play point guard he could play center it doesn't matter okay Dwayne wait okay starting to make a lot more of sense and we see over the ensuing years, small ball really start to take hold, especially as this proposition within the playoffs to stress other teams' uh, roster inability to match up. So that means tweeners start to take on added importance. Because now when you're bumping people up the positional chart, a six foot six dude who is a hell of a defender, one of, if not maybe, the best defenders I personally have ever watched, dude who plays with noticeable competitive fire, a dude who, while not a scorer, makes a lot of sense as a distributor off of what Steph Curry brings, especially within that pick and roll, especially when Steph can draw two people to him and he's flipping it to Draymond and now it's a four on three and he's going downhill. I mean, they've made a living off of that for the last eight years especially this willingness of Draymond to engage with any defensive assignment. Okay, he's six foot six. He's got a huge wingspan. He's He wants to play physical. He's going to take on any assignment in a small ball world. That suddenly makes a ton of sense as a center, which at 2012, I personally, who watch a lot of basketball, would never sit and think. You know, I'm kind of with the times and I'm going, oh, so, uh, yeah, whatever. I didn't have any opinions on Draymond Green. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't think about second round NBA draft picks. But then over the course of time, we see, okay, suddenly you are a key and integral piece of this team that is winning championship after championship and playing in NBA finals. Uh, And yeah, the dude, I mean, I find him to be annoying as hell. But Draymond is also one of the greatest competitors of his generation, an enormous piece of this warrior's dynasty, which is very interesting because in past eras, this guy might not even get a chance. Just makes you think, you know, like how many people, because they're playing in this era or played in past eras, missed their time because of the way that we view positions, because of the way we change on what we value within a position. I'm thinking about that as I'm watching game three again. The position of center, as I start to think beyond just Steph and Draymond. And I'm thinking back to the last time I watched... The Celtics play in the NBA Finals, which was 2010. And I'm going, it's weird. It seems like it's happened so, it's taken so long, but it's been so fast. I can't even make up my mind on what the timetable is. But the position of center has changed almost immeasurably. Over the course of my lifetime, over the course of the last 15 years, sometimes it seems like over the last five years. Because the last time the Celtics were in the Finals, 2010, they're starting Kendrick Perkins. He ends up getting injured in that series. It was a huge point of why the Celtics ended up losing in game seven. They're gone. If we had Kendrick here, I mean, we would have won. Which at the time I was like, yeah, I don't, I see the line of reasoning there. Also insane to look back on. And if you remember Kendrick Perkins game, it was just, it's a big, huge, warm body. That's the nicest way I could describe what Kendrick Perkins would bring to the basketball court. He had some competitive fire like Draymond, if I'm giving him credit but it was just a very feet stuck in cement style of player. Big, you come in, I might clothesline you. I'm not going to give anything on offense. I can rebound the ball because I'm big and I'm always going to be standing in the key. There's not a lot more that was going on besides that. Then I'm watching game three and I'm just watching basketball in present day. And I'm thinking, this is kind of incredible. I mean, this is 12 years ago. And, And this is a guy that, literally could not last one minute in these NBA finals. If he were on either side, they would string him out and get him into a pick and roll so fast and just bomb wide open threes or get shots at the rim that you literally could not play him. It's just been, an again, almost immeasurable transformation of how many of this immobile style of center from the past existed again, even a decade ago, that now you're not even going to sniff being drafted in the NBA because basketball has changed. And what we want from the center position is a lot more versatility. It's a lot more, uh, you're going to get stressed on defense on the perimeter, which in the past you'd never think of, you know, you never think of Kim Olajuwon coming out and trying to guard these pick and rolls or or. Kevin McHale out there trying to guard a pick and roll. You just didn't really think like that. That's not the way that teams were constructed. I mean, imagine in present day using a first round pick on somebody like Greg Ostertag, who just is a big, warm body. Again, the best way I can describe a lot of these centers that seem like relics from the past. The interesting part is, even looking at it in present day, just how we value the position in general. I mean, that's immensely changed. I mentioned Elijah Wan, but traditional thinking in the past was if you get yourself a franchise center, you're set. I mean, you can win championship after championship. Get yourself a Shaq, get yourself an Elijah Wan, get yourself a Cream. And now we're a couple years removed from the Phoenix Suns picking a player like DeAndre Ayton at number one. And at the time, I think a lot of people were, okay, yeah, I get, uh, he's got the tools, he can be versatile, this is sweet, huge body, got some skills there too, but, and now we're looking at present day, and then it seems incredibly controversial. Not just because of who came after him, Luka Doncic and Trey Young, but because you look at the draft and you say, can you even pick a center that high anymore, regardless of their skill set? You're the Warriors, and you picked James Wiseman, number two overall, a couple years ago, and now he's just riding your bench again and again and again. Can you afford to whiff that much on a pick that high at a position that seems like its value diminishes by the day? And DeAndre Ayton, I I kind of feel bad for him because he's a good basketball player. Again, skills, he's improved immensely ever since he's came in the league, especially on the defensive side of the ball. He's been a pretty key piece for Phoenix being one of the best teams in basketball the last couple years. But at the same time, he's also continually stressed by the way that basketball is played in this era. And if you're nitpicking, you go, okay, you're good, but when it gets down to these high intensity playoff series and games, would we rather have a center like you that we drafted number one overall, or would we rather have picked somebody else? makes more sense in the context of today's NBA. Luka Doncic, absolutely. But even a player like Trey Young, who's coming more out of that Steph Curry mold. Small scoring guard, is this guy going to work? Well, yeah. There's a way that that works a lot more than I think drafting this center, who now is just kind of caught in NBA purgatory. I think that makes a lot more sense. It's like, it's the Rudy Gobert debate, you know? Who alongside of Ayton, these are both guys who would have been Celebrated as legit stars in the past. Great defense from Rudy. Eight and he can do a lot of things. Oh, yeah. And now in present day, they are the centerpieces of arguments about whether or not you can win with them on your roster. It's very strange, right? Just the way that a positional value changes over time and sometimes even in a short amount of time as it pertains to the center position and present day. And then also what we value specifically within that position. So as we expand this out, I want to talk about the NHL a little bit, because this has been on my mind a lot as I've watched my Colorado Avalanche over the last few years. And the Avs have had various ways that they've gone about their business that are different from the past. And I think right at the forefront of that is the way that they have constructed their defense core. Because the position of NHL defensemen, it's always been valued. It is currently valued. It will literally be valued for all of time. There are just so few positions on the ice. And this one especially, Just it's, it's rare and hard to find really high-quality NHL defensemen that do anything that you need to have done. It's a position that's always going to have value. Now, what has changed immensely, and I will credit the avalanche with kind of pushing forward, one of many other teams, but they're one of the teams that are kind of pushing forward a change in what is valued within the specific position. In the past, people who possessed an immense amount of offensive gifts that played defense, they were kind of treated as unicorns. And for some of them, they were. You know, Bobby Orr, that's a unicorn. The dude's winning heart trophies as MVP. He's leading the league in scoring on the back end for the Bruins in the 70s. I mean, he's like, he's kind of his own category. And even the people who came after, whether it's a a Paul Coffey for the Oilers and then the Penguins, a bunch of other teams, or Ray Bork with the Bruins, and then he wins a cup with the Avalanche. They also are and were treated as unicorns. You can play defense still, especially like a dude like Bork, who's just Great all-around defensemen, but they're puck movers. They're from the back end. They have great point totals, also play in defense. Players like this, they were treated more as one-offs than as kind of a teaching mechanism for defensemen. And again, some of that was fair. The natural ability side for all three of those people, you can't find that. The way that just Orr did everything, the way that Coffee Skates just Bork's cerebral instincts combined with his physical tools, you can't really teach a lot of that. You know, it's natural ability. You just say, cool, God given stuff, we'll move on. Don't need to worry about that. Now, what has really changed in the ensuing decades is just mulling over this question of, okay, well, what are the things that defensemen can be taught that are valuable for a team? Because when you look outside of those unicorns of the past, every NHL defense core. It was the vast majority of them was just filled with guys whose job it was to, if you came into your offensive zone, they would maul you. And their number one job was just bash you against the boards, get the puck out by any means necessary. Flip it out, bash it off the boards, risk and It doesn't matter. Your job was to maul the opposition when they came into your defensive zone and clear it. And a lot of people made, you know, really good livings based upon that tenement. I'd look at the Avalanche past, and I'd say one of my favorite players when I was a kid was Adam Foote. One of my actual favorite defensemen of all time. Uh, his number 52 hangs in the rafters currently at Ball Arena. Part of two Stanley Cup teams for the Avs, played there a really long time. And he just, he symbolized what you needed in a traditional NHL defenseman in the mid-90s, in early 2000s he's big he's physical he was just nasty as hell you came in he would mash you and i mean mash you monster mash He would monster mash you against the boards he'd kill your penalties if you ever got the puck on a stick it's getting out of the zone as fast as possible just flip it out get it out you try to come in again you're gonna pay a price in blood And again, that spoke to what we had always known and valued about the position. Okay, Bobby Orr, Paul Coffey, Ray Bark, if we draft somebody like that and you have that much gifts, great, we'll use it. But what we're training people to do, what we're drafting for, because we just know those are unicorns, we're going to draft big, we're going to draft physical, we're going to draft people who are not known for their skating, we're going to draft people who your main job is to get the puck out of the defensive zone, okay? So what's occurred in the recent past, and again, Colorado has kind of been one of the driving forces behind this, is we're seeing an immense shift in what is valued within the position of defensemen. Most notably, this idea that offense starts in the defensive zone. Now, it's not to say that you're doing the Bobby or The Avalanche have one player who can do it. It's Kael McCarr. He is a unicorn. Okay. but. What we're teaching and what we're looking for in drafting and acquisitions are people who have puck moving ability from the back end that starts offense. They're not skating through five people, but as soon as they get the puck on their stick, the idea behind it is, okay, we don't just want you to throw it to center ice and clear the zone and make sure it's out. What we think is really valuable is more cerebral style hockey. You get the puck on your stick. You don't panic you don't bash it, you start to think, do I need to skate this out? Do I need to pass this out to one of my teammates to start a transition play? Very valuable in hockey, which is funny because I'm sure a lot of you are hearing this and go, well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It does. And yet we haven't really, really, really comprehended it until the last less than a decade. Puck moving from the back end is worth its weight in gold. You know, we're really leaning into the idea that Transition offense starts the moment that the puck touches a defenseman's stick. So if you know that, then we probably want to exit with possession, whether that's via pass, whether that's via the carry from the defenseman itself. Hmm, that seems really valuable because instead of just clearing it and having to go and fight a bunch of battles just to regain possession of the puck, we have possession. And you know what might be good? Possession, especially moving with speed through the neutral zone. On a team like Colorado, where you have a lot of that. Now, there are two people I want to single out specifically that kind of represent this new shift that the Avalanche are, you know, building. They have built a defensive core off of Sam Girard and Devontae. Sam Girard's currently out of the playoffs. He broke his sternum in game one against the St. Louis Blues. Sucks, because I like watching Sam Girard play hockey. And he's one of the people that's integral to the way that the Avalanche play hockey. And Sam Girard is a person. You would never see drafted in a past era. You never would. He's five foot ten. he's 165 pounds, he plays defense. You see just those physical dimensions in 1994 and they're around in the draft and you got players like Adam Foote who are just, they're physical maulers. And you go, well, yeah, what? No, that, well, that does not make any sense. We do not want that. I don't even know why this guy's putting his name into the draft. And even half a decade ago, he's part of the Matt Duchesne trade. The Avs ship him out to Ottawa. And Gerard's one of the players that comes over in that trade. <laughs> Coincidentally enough, along with a draft choice that becomes Bowen Byram, who is another incredibly gifted puck mover that's currently playing on Colorado's back end. But even when Gerard comes over, I don't really know anything about him because why would I be paying attention to Ottawa Senators? Up and coming draft choices. He's actually drafted by Nashville, but you get the point. I'm skeptical when he comes in because he's five foot ten, he's 165 pounds, and he plays defense. I go, well, I don't. That doesn't even make any sense. So I watch his game more and more because he starts playing with the Abs. They're not very good at that time, so they're just like, yeah, let's get let's get a warm body in here. It's young, give him room to grow. The more I watch him, the more I start to go, okay, I I understand this a lot more than. I would have because I needed to see it happen. I need to see how Sam Gerard uses his stick and his smarts more than his body to defend. It's key. You don't necessarily have to just go and bang people. You can outwork them with your stick, put yourself in position with just understanding of angles and that kind of stuff. And okay, that is a way to play defense. And then when you're rolling and those things are working, Sam Gerard is very, very good at immediately converting that into offense for his teammates. He's not going to go and skate through five dudes. He's not Cam McCard. Nobody is. But get the stick in the way. Okay. Quick steal. Next thing you know, he's skating it out and passing it up ice to McKinnon on the rush. That is worth its weight in gold. Okay. Now, one the dude who is playing currently, who has had a phenomenal playoff so far as the Avalanche sit waiting for their Stanley Cup opponent, is Devontae's. He's the other half of the Kelmakar pairing. And there are times when I feel bad for Taze because he is an incredible hockey player in his own right. And he'll never get talked about to the level that McCarr is talked about. And understandably so. McCarr is a unicorn and he is 23 years old and he might be the best player in hockey. And holy shit, I can't imagine what he is going to be like over the ensuing years. But Devon Taze also represents this, this, If you want to call it new way of playing hockey, that's that's great. Because he's a master of this specific style. You don't have to be big. You don't have to be physical. You don't have to be a bruiser. He's none of those things. He's an incredibly gifted skater, and he's incredibly gifted with his stick. Those are two things in the past you would associate with a forward, with a winger. Okay, we don't want you to have defensive responsibilities. You just go and you skate, and you make plays offensively, and we'll worry about your defensive warts later. Okay, that's not Devontae's. Devontae's defensively, is one of the best defenders in hockey. Which is interesting because physical dimensions of him do not match up with that. The way he plays does not match up with how we viewed the best defenders on the blue line in the past. Taze makes a living denying entries at the blue line. That's a very noticeable distinction about what is valued now, especially on Colorado, relative to the past. In the past, okay, we'll give up the blue line, but closer you get to the net, we're going to decapitate you. Tays and Makar, their pairing makes a living denying you in the neutral zone, denying you at the offensive blue line, denying you their own blue line. They're just any time they can try and make a play to deny you from moving the puck forward. They try and make it. They make defensive plays all the time in their offensive zone. They're both masters of it. I mean, Tays, Tays has one of the best sticks in hockey. If you watched any of the Edmonton series, if you watched all of the Edmonton series. You know what I'm talking about. It was just, it was a constant unleashing of Edmonton wants to play in transition. Makar and Taze, they're going against the very best. They're eating minutes against McDavid and Drysaddle, And they're just, okay, skate with them. Get your stick, get your stick. And as soon as we gain position, bam, it's going the other way. Again, alongside Makar, like the the reason this pairing is just the best in hockey, it's because Taze is a master. It gaining possession of the puck and immediately sending the other way with control. Which is, it's really fun to watch. I'm just, I feel incredibly blessed that it's on my team. But it's also really funny to think about as an idea. Because it's very logical. You know, in the past you go, well, yeah, why were you playing deep? Why was the way that you would play defense is Concede, 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 concede until they get by the goal and then try to obliterate them. Seems like the best way to play defense is what is currently happening, which is let's get possession of the puck and always play in the offensive zone. And if they regain possession there in their own defensive zone, we can still try and play defense there to keep it in the zone. Tays and McCarr, that that pairing has built a reputation upon that principle. It's not as revolutionary as what Curry has done with basketball, but it comes from a similar place. You watch it, and the more you watch it, you go, why hasn't everybody been doing this for all of time? And why has this type of skill set, especially a player like Taze, not really been utilized, not really been sought after? So the position of defenseman, just as valuable as ever. Again, it always will be, but what we value within the position is changing drastically. You feel what I'm saying, right? I'll kind of end with one more position that is illustrative of just how drastically things can change, not even in that long of a period of time. Because the most dramatic change in positional value in my lifetime, it's running backs in the NFL. Growing up, running back, it's everything. The be-all, it's the end-all. You need a strong running back in college. You need a strong running back in the NFL. It's how you win. Ground and pound, play some defense, hand it off 30 times a game, and that's the recipe for success. Why you have the 1989 Herschel Walker trade. Cowboys are the worst team in football. They go 1-15 that year. The Vikings, they think they're kind of floating around the Super Bowl mix, and the thing that's going to push them over the top is a great running back. So the Vikings trade five players and six draft picks. Five players and six draft picks. Draft picks for Herschel Walker. Because I think it's going to push him over the edge. This is the this is the one position we need. Which at the time you don't nobody really even bats an eye about, you know? Two of those picks end up becoming Emmett Smith, one of the greatest running backs of all time, and Darren Woodson, a four-time all-pro on the back end for the Cowboys. Like this trade is the starting point of what becomes the Cowboys three Super Bowl winning dynasty. You just get that many assets, period. You're going to reap a lot of rewards much less you get that many assets or a position that now we look at and go, oh, you're pretty dependent upon everything around you. It's crazy, you know, that's 1989. Okay, that's a long time ago. All right, fast forward 10 years and we have the Ricky Williams trade, which I've talked about in this show. That's 23 years ago. Not that long ago in the grand scheme of things, but the Saints trade their entire draft in 1999 and a first and third round pick in 2000 just to get Ricky Williams to come and play tailback. And again, did not seem that crazy at the time. I'd watch Ricky Williams at Texas, just feast on Nebraska every year he played him. Heisman Trophy winner, one of the best tailbacks we'd seen up until that point in college football. Saints want him. Okay, yeah, it makes sense. Mike Dick as the coach, the big bruising football man. We need a strong running back. We need to play defense. Didn't seem that crazy. Maybe a little bit of an overpay. Yeah, okay, but you're getting Ricky Williams. Now, neither, <laughs> spoiler alert, neither one of those trades worked out well at all for the Saints or for the Vikings. When you're trading heaven and earth, Or a running back, probably not that great. Now, if you think of either of those things happening in present day, I would die. I would probably die. I think everybody would who follows football. But again, it's not that long ago that we still thought this position, this position of running back was key. Okay, let's keep going forward. Let's talk about 2006, a big draft year. Who's coming out? Most electric college football player of my life. Reggie Bush, USC tailback. Swiss Army Knife could kind of do everything again, probably the funnest player I've ever watched in college football. And it seems like it's a no brainer. The Texans, they got the number one pick. They're building up their uh, expansion franchise and it's just a no brainer. You're going to get the most electric player. Super important position. Okay, great. And they draft Mario Williams, defensive end out of NC State at the time. And I'm just going, this is insane. Everybody. I'm one of the people. I go, this is atrocious. This is insane. You cannot Pass up Reggie Bush. You have the number one pick. Just lock this position down. He's the best player. He's playing running. It's going to be perfect for you. Now, Mario Williams didn't have a great NFL career, but it was better than Reggie Bush's. But the Texans also, their credit, not a super smart or well-run organization as we're finding out over the last (laughs) decade and a half. But I'll give them credit at the time. They understood, yeah, Reggie Bush might be good, but that's a running back. And defensive end is always going to be right at the top of the list of Positional value. We need people who can rush the passer. We have the number one pick. We can't really afford to take a running back here. That would be insane, right? So you keep fast forwarding because surely people's minds start to change as things are going forward. Whether that's a fan like me, whether that's brain trust of NFL teams that are in charge of actually piecing together rosters and drafting and acquiring free agents. But okay, we go to 2016, 10 years later. That's six years ago. Dallas Cowboys, fourth overall pick in the draft, draft uh, Ezekiel Elliott out of Ohio State. He's great for his rookie contract. At the same time, the Cowboys have the best offensive line in football, which, I mean, kind of need to piece those together. They end up signing him to a second contract, which now is just an albatross around their neck. More importantly, as we talk about positions and we talk about positional value and what you should be sinking resources into. We're starting to get a bigger gauge at that time. Zeke's coming off an incredible run with Ohio State. Single-handedly just burns Alabama and Oregon to the ground in 2014 on the way to the national championship. He's awesome in 2015. But he's drafted fourth overall right in front of Jalen Ramsey and DeForest Buckner. Which at the time you go, ah, I don't know, those just cornerback and D-end. Those are just, you kind of need those more than you need a running back. Especially if you have a really good offensive line. We're starting to engage with the idea. All right, running back might be more dependent upon other things than we were willing to let on earlier in life. Dalen Ramsey becomes the best cornerback in football. DeForest Buckner becomes one of the most disruptive defenders in football along the defensive line. Okay, you might want that one back. So maybe you're learning some lessons, right? Uh, 2017, next year. Jaguars on the clock. Fourth overall. Who do they draft? Leonard Fournette. Tailback out of LSU. Four picks later, who do the Panthers draft? Eighth overall, Christian McCaffrey. Both these players had good flashes, good, okay, great. The problem is you're dedicating resources that could be spent on positions that matter infinitely more. Shortly after McCaffrey's drafted eighth, who are two people that go off the board? Patrick Mahomes, Kansas City Chiefs, Sean Watson to the Houston Texans. It's just transformative errors. And obviously everybody who is in front of Patrick Mahomes that didn't draft him, they go, that's, an error that will we will fill the ripple effects for for all of time. What makes it even more egregious is when you look at like the Zeke draft and you go, we could have had any replacement player X playing tailback and had a player like Jalen Ramsey or DeForest Buckner playing one of the most important positions in football on our roster, on a rookie contract. That is worth its weight in gold. Think about the avalanche puck moving defenseman kind of thing. Positional value, right? Even the next year, 2018, I mean... That's four years ago, and Dave Gettleman's the GM for the Giants, and they're on the clock at number two, and they need everything at this point in time. Okay, the Giants—they're just—they have nothing on their roster. They need everything, and for reasons unknown, probably just because Gettleman is the ultimate football man, Mike Ditka style. But in 2018, with the second overall pick, they draft Saquon Barkley, who was great in college, who I thought would be great in the NFL, but it was a running back, and you needed an entire roster to be boosted up. You needed every single position to be better. And so then you look at the picks that go shortly thereafter and you go, Well, yeah, you could have used Denzel Ward, cornerback for the Browns, who's drafted two picks after you because he's been awesome and he plays a position of immense value. Or you could have drafted a dude who came right after him, Quentin Nelson, who's already the best guard in football and has completely transformed the Indianapolis Colts offensive line. Or Best yet, you know who you could have used? Josh Allen, who was drafted right after, who has turned into one of, if not the best quarterbacks in football right now in present day. The position with the most value. I could keep going on and on and on, and on, but you get the point, you know? You get the point how drastically the position of running back and the value that we place upon it has changed. And yet still people make errors within that position. Passing has exploded. We know that vast majority of people with your very rare Dave Gettleman exceptions, they're more aware than ever that running back is a position that is dependent upon its surroundings. And that's kind of existed somewhat in the past. You know, Mike Shanahan, he built an entire career. He won Super Bowls. Granted, he had Terrell Davis there, who was a great tailback, but Mike Shanahan never hesitated to go, yeah, I trust this system. We're going to get a great offensive line. We're going to put people in position to succeed through our scheme. We can get any tailback and run for a bunch of yards. And he did. And his son came along, Kyle Shanahan, and he has done the exact same thing. He's built an entire system around this very idea. Very successfully, You might add Every stop he's been at. Tailback doesn't really matter. We're going to build a system that transcends that particular position because it's the least valuable on the roster. If you can make it into the league as a running back, it means you are athletically explosive and gifted. And if you're those two things and you get into a situation like what the Niners present, well, we've seen a hell of a lot of tailbacks succeed within that. So, Running back changes drastically. I mean, there's so many things across the spectrum of sports. This, this probably could be a year-long podcast because I find the subject to be infinitely fascinating and always kind of changing. And the more that I talk about it, the more I just think, all right, yeah, like what are the changes to come? You know, like what am I sitting here in four years thinking about that have changed as drastically as running back or what we value within NHL defensemen? Or the point guard positioner, all these things, you know, like what, what are the changes to come? Tweeners in the NBA, there's so many things that have happened within the last decade. Now I'm fast forwarding, looking at the next decade and going, okay, you know, what is going to change about positional value? What is going to change about what we value within a position? Who knows, you know? Um, to wrap up today's show, I want to read a quote. It came from a Bill Conley article on ESPN, but the quote is actually from Aaron Schatz who started Football Outsiders, which is one of the most widely known and used metric systems uh, concerning the NFL in present day. And he's been doing it for a long time. Uh, So this quote comes from Aaron Schatz and it's about all of the things kind of that I've been talking about. I feel like I have to apologize on behalf of analytics to all running backs. The amount that running backs get paid has changed so much over the last 20 years. It changes how players are valued in the draft, and it changes their trade value. When I started this, referring to his analytics, I knew passing seemed to be more efficient, but I didn't realize how much more efficient, and I didn't realize just how little difference there was between running backs. The same is starting to go now for interior defensive linemen who aren't pass rushers or for off-ball linebackers. We are learning a lot about positional value." Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. Remember, I want to talk to people who are passionate about sports, who feel this deep emotional connection with the things they watch or interact with. If you are one of those people, if you know somebody like that, if you're comfortable talking into a microphone as I speak to you, uh, hit me up. My email address is co.com. I would love to connect and go from there. Second, uh, subscribe to my newsletter. It's easy. Go to chrisroll.com. Subscribe, top right hand corner, put your email address in. Wednesday morning, you'll be getting it. Damn. All right. Thank you for listening. This has been a grand old week. Next week, the Stanley Cup Finals are gonna be one step closer. The NBA finals are going to be nearing their conclusion. So we'll have more things to talk about. Till then, peace.